So why don't we just give John another big round of applause. Let's welcome him. Thank you so much. It's a real joy to be amongst you this morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, and thank you so much for your prayers for us as a small church plant in Istanbul. Really, particularly the last year, we've really felt carried by lots of prayers. And there's been some things where you go, if it wasn't God, uh, certainly we wouldn't have some of the stories we, we've been seeing of how God's breaking in. Uh, just before I share about the bit about the church and preach, I'd just like to come off the back of really the worship time where we were praying for the, those who'd gone to New Day uh, and, th- and then someone brought something along the lines of, uh, to the worship leader, brought along the lines of actually it's not just about the big conference where God meets with you. It's about actually God can meet with you today and Steve brought something like that. And I just want to affirm that. I think it's so easy. I think for those who are at New Day, God wants to encourage you actually it's about every day you can encounter God. Every day. It's not about uh, being in a big conference. That's not the deal. Actually, God's the living God and he can meet you in his living room, your living room. He can meet you in your bedroom. And then need, But the reality is, often God responds to the faith we have. And if we believe uh, that God meets with us in the big conferences but don't have expectations that he will meet us in everyday life and in our bedroom, then the likelihood is we're going to experience less of that. And I just think God would want to really encourage you. And for some of you where you always have that mindset that says, when I go to the big event, when I go to the new ground conference, that's when God's going to meet me. Yes, he will. But actually, there needs to be a broadening of that that says, actually, God can meet me wherever I am and meet my needs. So Jesus said, anyone who's thirsty, let them come to me and drink. And I would just love to pray. Can I quickly stand up? I would just love to pray that God would help us have a mindset that says, God can meet me today. God can meet me now. Uh, God can meet me in my bedroom tonight. And it's no accident this is called the River Church, is it? There's a prophetic thing behind it. And actually, God's river comes to us as we are. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you that you're the God who eagerly draws near to his people. We want to thank you that it's not just about once a year going to a big celebration, but it's about the fact that you're a living God who comes to meet with your people. And God, I want to pray for all of us. I want to pray, would, would you meet with us at those big events? But God, more than that, we want to pray for every day to be walking with you, to have an expectation that the living God comes by his spirit and empowers us and transforms us and does wonderful things in our midst. God, I want to pray, Lord, if we're brought into false thinking, would you break that from us and would you, give us, uh, would you cause us to have faith to expect you to encounter us in everyday life? We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So my wife and I moved to Istanbul five years ago bit over five years ago. So Istanbul uh, isn't the capital of Turkey, but it kind of functions as the capital of Turkey. It's a city of about 15 to 20 million people. And we live, it's, it's a brilliant city. Uh, just the other day, I went to Europe for lunch and then came back in the afternoon to Asia. In fact, quite often, uh, because the city's separated by the Bosphorus down the middle. So on the left-hand side, on the uh, on the west is Europe, on the right-hand side of Istanbul, where we live in Uskadar. Uh, is Asia, and Uskadar is a district of 540,000 people. And when we actually moved to Uskadar, there was not a single Bible-believing church in the area. Uh, so praise God, God's working. There's now four or five different congregations that have been started in the last three or four years. So it seems like God's actually doing something in Uskadar itself. So our plan when we went out there was we did two years language learning, 
Literally, we came as students going, you know what, we, we, know, we understand the gospel, we don't understand how to communicate, A, we can't communicate because we can't speak Turkish, B, we don't understand the culture, so how are we going to explain it in terms that people understand? So we came as students trying to learn, trying to go, what does it look like? So we did two years learning, then with much frailty and much weakness, we've planted a congregation, uh, and God's been very gracious and been helping us. I feel more and more... Uh, where Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he wrote about God shows the foolish things, God shows the weak things, God shows the despised things of this world to work through. Very much so, I, I kind of thought when I used to live in England, I felt a level of competency because I understood the culture and the language and could communicate in a reasonable manner. But here it just feels very different. I often feel very incompetent, and we feel as a team very incompetent. But praise God, he's not incompetent, and he uses us in spite of our weaknesses uh, and is very kind. So let me tell you just a couple of stories. Now, when I tell you these stories, do hear off the backdrop, these are the highlight stories of the year. There's lots of things where you're dealing with disputes in the church, and you're dealing with challenges, and there's Sundays where... Uh, numbers are low. But let me just tell you a couple of highlight stories from the last month or so. Uh, the first one is about my friend Erdem. So he started coming along to our church in January. Erdem is from a very conservative Muslim background. Uh, he wasn't particularly religious, but his parents are. Uh, so he came along and started joining our Alpha course where people can explore the Christian faith. And he just had a real openness about him. And a real turning point for him was this, when he realized that you could speak to God. There was no such thing as a holy language in, in Christianity. Because obviously in Islam, people pray in Arabic. So Turks pray in Arabic. Uh, but him suddenly realizing that in Christianity, there's no such thing as a holy language. That a Turk can pray in Turkish. That an English person can pray in English. That a Spanish person can pray in Spanish. And not only that, but he, you can pray to your Father in heaven. So he wasn't yet a Christian, but he started praying to God in his mother tongue, Turkish. Uh, and that was a real breakthrough moment. And it's so contrasting to what he'd grown up with, where he used to recite the odd prayers he didn't particularly understand. Anyway, God started answering some of his prayers. There was a clear sense of God working in him. One of the times, we used to have these wonderful Sundays where we'd have the meeting, and then afterwards he'd ask, sit around and ask me questions. And it's so funny, in England I felt like I generally knew the questions people would ask. In Turkey it's a bit different, so he was exploring becoming a Christian. And he said to me, so if I become a Christian, where will I be buried? That was his big question. Where will I be buried? A, because for Muslims, obviously you don't cremate people. That's a bit of a no-go. But Muslims get buried in Muslim graveyards. Christians would get buried in Christian graveyards. But in Turkey, there weren't really many Christian graveyards because there were hardly any Christians. So it was a really big thing for him. And everything in me said, oh, it doesn't matter. You can just get burnt. But that's not the right response. But it's really fascinating trying to learn to answer these questions. So anyway, uh, but he, I wasn't sure whether he'd become a Christian. We had some baptisms in the church. And afterwards, I said, oh, let's all pray uh, for the people getting baptized. So he started praying for them. Uh, and as he started praying for me, he started speaking in tongues. So I thought, okay, I think you'll probably become a Christian. Uh, and it was clear God was working in his life. Anyway, uh, a month ago, he went and spoke to his family, said to them, I've become a Christian, I want to get baptized. Now, that's a huge thing for him in terms of his family could have completely rejected him. Praise God, they haven't. Uh, but there's a few tensions there, but he stayed strong in the faith. And we had the privilege of baptizing him three weeks ago. So... God's at work. And it's just beautiful seeing this story of what God's doing. Uh, at the beginning of July, 
uh, we had an Uzbek lady, well, we've got an Uzbek lady in our church, we're quite international, uh, and her aunt came to Istanbul because she was, partly she wanted to visit family, partly she struggled from, she has diabetes and she struggled with something called neuropathy to do with her diabetes. In particular, she couldn't feel in her feet. Uh, it was very painful to walk. To put it in context, it was so bad that when she arrived at Istanbul airport, she had to get a wheelchair from the terminal to the exit uh, because she couldn't walk. So normally she hobbled around with a, uh, a walking stick. But anyway, she came along to our Sunday meeting because she wanted to... She'd heard her aunt, her, her aunt talk about how fantastic it was. Not her aunt, uh, Nergis, her relative. Anyway, she came along. Uh, at the end of the meeting, she wanted to be prayed for. There's a real openness for people to be prayed for. So she got prayed for. I wasn't even there, actually. I was on holiday at the time. But the guys from our church gathered around her, laid hands on her and prayed for her. And as that happened, she felt electricity in her. She felt this heat rushing through her body. And then she started walking around, and then she started dancing. And it's really fascinating. She's not a believer, and she kept on going, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. What's going on? Anyway, the next, that, that next week, she toured around Istanbul quite happily, walking around the whole time. Uh, the following Sunday, she came to church again and put her faith in Jesus. because she'd seen, And she's returned to Uzbekistan now. Uh, and she keeps on, so she went to the doctor and the doctor said, what's got happened to you? And she said, oh, Jesus has healed me. Uh, so it's this fascinating thing going on. So there's just two highlight stories from uh, recent, recently. There might be a picture of my family in a moment. This is a picture of our children at a wedding. They obviously look very happy. It's obviously a bit last year because our son's doing a dab. Uh, so that's Sam, who's 11, Ben, who's 9, Thomas, who's 7, Grace, who's 5. So three of them are... So yeah, they're doing well. This is the first year. It takes a long time for children to settle. Actually. It's the first year where they're saying... They're in England at the moment, and they're saying, oh, I want to return to Turkey. And that's a real breakthrough moment, because for all the other years, it's often been, I don't want to return, I'd like to stay in England. So it's wonderful seeing them finally settling. Okay, let me, let me uh, read from the Scriptures. I'm going to do a standalone sermon, and we're going to look at Luke chapter 8, verses 40 to 56. So if you've got a Bible, can you turn there? Let me give you just a bit of a background uh, to what I'm going to say. So Luke's gospel uh, was written by Luke the doctor to his friend Theophilus. Now Luke was not one of the 12 disciples, but he spoke to those who were eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and the 12 disciples and wrote an orderly account of what happened in Jesus' life. So the miracles he did, the stories and parables he told, what happened to Jesus at the end of his life. And he writes with a real sense of detail. He writes like a historian. He writes a very orderly account. And Luke writes, as Jesus bursts onto the scene, he proclaims his manifesto. Uh, and we see that in... Uh, we see that and Jesus comes into the synagogue. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 61, uh, and we read these words here. And Jesus came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and as, he was with his, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
And then it says, and then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And as we'll see in the story we're looking at today, actually Jesus is fulfilling this manifesto uh, that he proclaims from Isaiah 61. You'll see the beauty of how Jesus came to people who were broken and restored them and brought honour into their lives. But before we zoom into that story, I'd like to zoom out. Actually, in Istanbul, in, in the Middle East, the big picture is always so important. The big picture is what's essential to understand if you're going to understand the small picture. So, for example, one of my friends was doing a Bible translation project in Lebanon. Uh, and they did this translation bit, and then they ran it past some locals saying, what do you think? And it was fascinating. The locals said this. They said, well, this is great, but we don't know whether to trust these people in this story because we don't know where they come from. We don't know their history. We don't know their background. So we read it, and we just read about someone's name and go, okay, let's pick up the story from there. But their interest is, well, what's the backstory to that? So backstories are really important. So I'd love to just give you a massive big picture of what this, what's going on in this story, and then we zoom in on the parable itself, or the story itself. And the big picture is this, and you will know this. In the beginning, when God made the world, everything was perfect. It was amazing. There was no barrier between humans, between Adam and Eve and God. They walked with God. They worked, and they ruled God's creation. It was perfect. It was blameless. It was spotless. Adam and Eve were to be God's image bearers to the world, to represent him. So when people looked at Adam and Eve, they were meant to see the reflection of what God was like. But we know the story of Scripture, don't we? We know the story of Scripture at the beginning that Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God. They turned their backs on God. And when that happened, something disastrous took place. Let me just get my hammer. Wait a sec. Oh. I'm hoping this will work. Yes. It has worked. You'll be glad to know, people. This happened. There's still the image. You can still see some reflection. So if you look at yourself in the mirror, uh, you'll see something. But it's marred. It's distorted. And that's what's happened. So, so humanity was to represent fully the glory of God as his image bearers. But that image was marred. It was distorted. It was damaged. And you can still see something of the glory of God and what he's like, but not, in, not what it was meant to be. And the trouble of that, the trouble of Adam and Eve and humankind turning their back on God and rebelling him, was it had consequences, and there are three major consequences it had. And the first one is vertical, which is this. Beforehand, Adam and Eve walked with God. They had a relationship with him. And after that, that vertical relationship between mankind and humankind was broken. The connection, the sweet connection was destroyed. Secondly, there was a horizontal consequence, which was relationships between man and woman, between humans, were broken. And we see that so clearly, don't we? we could, I can have an argument with my wife. I can have arguments with my children. And I see that in myself. I, uh, it's so easy. Often church leadership is about dealing with problems with people. And there's that quote, isn't there? Uh, there's no such thing as a perfect church because churches have people in them. And so there was a horizontal consequence, which was relationships were just, uh, broken amongst people. Now, they still... Obviously, our relationships still reflect something of who God is like. But 
it's, it's tarnished somewhat. And the third consequence was this. It was creational. It affected the world. It polluted the world. Sin impacted the world as a whole. The Bible would teach that when humans rebelled, death and sickness entered the world. And that's the big story of creation and also mankind's rebellion against God, that we are now living in a world which still reflects something of God's fingerprints. I mean, you just wander in the, the hillsides and you see, wow, what an amazing place. And at the same time, that it's marred by sin. And on the one hand, I guess when we talk about sin often, we talk about sin being a human choice. So humans sin and are guilty. So the Bible says this, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So on the one hand, it's about human responsibility, and humans chose to rebel against God. On the other hand, sin is a despot and a cruel master, and humans are victims. We are born into a world that's broken, that's not working as it should be. So, for example, 9% of the world's population are chronically malnourished, victims of the greed of others. Over 27 million people today are caught in uh, modern-day slavery. We hear stories of one father getting cancer and dying young, while others are absolutely fine. Now, let's be clear. The father who gets cancer is no worse a sinner than the one who doesn't. The 27 modern uh, people caught in modern-day slavery are no more sinners than those who aren't. But sin has affected the world. And sin's a cruel ruler, and people are victims of its effects. And it's in this context, it's into this broken and marred world that isn't quite functioning as it should be, even though there are fingerprints and clear signs of God at work, that Jesus stepped in. That it says in John's Gospel, he, he became flesh and dwelt, tabernacle, dwelt amongst us. And it was into this situation that Jesus proclaimed good news to the poor. He proclaimed liberty for captives, recovery of sight for blind, and days of favour. And as we get to Luke chapter 7, uh, we get a summary of what's been happening to date. John's, John, the, John the Baptist's disciples, interestingly, John the Baptist has the same middle name as Winnie the Pooh. John the Baptist's disciples... Uh, uh, send a messenger, to, Je- send a messenger to, Je- to Jesus and say, are you the one we should be looking for? Are you the one who's really sent from God to rescue us? And Jesus replies like this. And he says, well, look, the sick are being healed, uh, the deaf are walking, the dead are being raised, good news is being proclaimed to the poor, or at least that's a summary of it. And Jesus is saying, yes, I am the one in essence. And so let's read now, focusing on the small story we're going to focus on today. A tale of two two healings. Luke chapter 8, starting at verse 40. I'll just read the whole passage and then we'll kind of go through it a few verses at a time. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an, an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she'd spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, master, the crowd surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. For I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling 
and falling down before him, de- falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, "Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace." While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. So try to imagine the scene. Jesus just returned on a boat, having been to a non-Jewish area, and having set free a man who had been living for years amongst the tombs and out of his mind, tormented by demons. So Jesus returns from this trip. The crowds follow him. Now, in Europe and in the Middle East, the idea of crowds is quite different. Okay, so if you're talking to people about uh, in the UK, in fact, no, we had a prayer meeting a while ago. This is, we had a prayer meeting in our church a while ago. All the Europeans in my church plant, they all sat, there weren't many of us there. There were about 10 of us there. They all sat with at least a space between them, Okay. So there was a chair between each person. All the Turks, they were on one, they were on the other side. It wasn't because we've got a big division in the church, but they all sat next to each other. No gaps whatsoever. And things are just more crowded. I mean, the buses in Turkey are called dolmashes, which means stuffed. And people literally crowd in. Uh, so we talk in England about churches being full and 80% capacity. That wouldn't be the same in the Middle East. There would have been crowds heaving around Jesus uh, so that, in a sense, he couldn't walk without people touching him. And that's the picture we've got to have in mind. It's not just a small little group. It's generally people pushing on each other, more like a New Day event at the front. So what you've got, you've got two people. And we've got Jairus, who's leader in the synagogue, a person of standing. And now by this stage in the story of Jesus' life, the religious leaders... Uh, are responding against Jesus in a negative way. In fact, it says a chapter earlier that they were plotting to kill him because he'd healed someone on the Sabbath. Yet in spite of the potential reproach from people who would be his peers, who would be those who would respect him, Jairus puts that to one side for the sake of his daughter. He humbled himself, and in, and in, and in front of the crowd, he says, look, would you come and heal my daughter? I mean, it was a huge thing for him to do. This religious leader who knows that all his friends are trying to kill Jesus, he can come to him and say, look, would you heal? You're my only hope. You see, he knows Jesus is the only hope. And in desperation, he humbles himself and he pleads to Jesus. And Jesus goes with him, walking to his house. And on the way, the crowds are touching him on every side. And that's when we're introduced to the second lady of this story, or the second person of this story, the woman. Now, whereas Jairus would normally walk with his head held high. He was someone of upstanding in that small community. This woman hid in the crowds. She didn't want to be identified. In fact, let's be honest, she wasn't used to the crowds. In fact, because of her medical condition, she shouldn't have even been there. She was seen, according to uh, thinking at the time, as perpetually unclean due to her sickness. David Hewitt writes this in his commentary on Mark's Gospel. Her condition would have made her an unwanted outcast, 
Under the regulations of Leviticus 15, she would not have been allowed to attend synagogue services or mix with others. Anyone who touched her would have been unclean also. She should not have been amongst the crowd that day. And she had been ill for 12 years, the same length of time that this daughter of Jairus's had been alive. So for 12 years, she had been ill. She's desperate. And like Jairus, she knows that Jesus is her only hope. And she humbles herself and kicking her back against how she is feeling, where she knows she's an outcast, she knows she's unwanted, she knows people don't want her in the crowd. She goes to find Jesus, her only hope. And a few things about this lady. This sickness has been chronic. It's lasted 12 years. This sickness has cost her everything. So she spent everything and still in the same state she was beforehand. She's been separated from society and separated from even going to worship. And she is identified by people as dirty and polluted. I just want you to imagine how that lady felt. The emotion she would have had to have felt as she pushed through the crowd towards Jesus. If they knew who she was, there would be anger. Because by her, them, her even touching people, they would also be thinking they would get unclean. There'd be further shame if she was identified. And her illness was paralyzing. But probably more than the sickness itself was the shame that she carried. The knowing that she was an unwelcome outsider. The lady was a victim to her sickness. It wasn't she was any more sinful than others. At least I don't think so. There's no hint in the text about that. And in a shame and on a culture, such as in the Middle East, the power of shame is crippling. The question of honour and shame shapes everything. Uh, I met with my language helper a few weeks ago, and we were just looking, well, a couple of months ago, and we were looking at all the different words in Turkish associated with shame and with honour. And there's multitudes of them. Uh, let me just tell you a funny story about shame and honour in Turkey. So my first experience of really experiencing the full impact of shame in Turkey was when my car broke down in the middle of a road. Anyway, it managed to break down rather unfortunately over the pavement. Uh, so it was kind of uh, at an angle. So people had to walk into the road to walk around it to then get back onto the pavement. Anyway, it just so happened there was a torrential rainstorm that took place at that moment. Uh, and I was by my car, so apologizing to people as they walked past. But then this rainstorm came, so they had to walk into this road that was like a river to walk out and get really wet. And as people walked past me, they kept on saying, what a shameful thing you've done. Aipyapton, they said. You've done something shameful. And they said this, and I must have had about 10, 15 people say to me, you've done something shameful. And it was so bad... I ended up abandoning my... And it wasn't, just a, it wasn't just some words. I ended up feeling this shame for what I'd done to such an extent that I abandoned my car and sat in a cafe across the road looking at, looking at until the person came to fix it because it was such a power. And that's a really minor thing. But this lady had lived for 12 years knowing a crippling shame. Let me just read you a definition of honour and shame uh, from a book, 3D Gospel. Honour is a person's social worth, one's value in the eyes of the community. Honour is when other people think well of you, resulting in harmonious social bonds in the community. Honour comes from relationships. Shame, on the other hand, is a negative public rating. The community thinks lowly of you. You are disconnected from the group. For example, one Thai word for shaming means to rip someone's face off, such that they appear ugly before others. Shame produces feelings of humiliation, disapproval, and abandonment. Shame means inadequacy of the entire person. While guilt says I made a mistake, shame says I am a mistake. 
Since the problem is the actual person, the shamed individual is banished from the group to avoid rejection and isolation. People mask their shame from others. Now, let's be honest, shame isn't a Middle Eastern thing. We know that in the UK. In the UK, there's a huge thing. Twitter is the place for pub shaming companies. Facebook is a shaming culture. Uh, we, we, shame is prevalent in our culture. And many of you know shame for things you've done. So if I said, oh, on the screen are going to be the 10 worst things you've ever done, we've managed to video them, and let's say that was for me, I know I'd be out the room. And it wouldn't be so much because of feeling guilt, it would be because of feeling shame for those things. And many of you know shame for the things you've done, or the things that have even sometimes been done to you that you haven't been responsible for. You know what it is to feel dirty. You know what it is to cover your shame for fear that people will find out who you are, and you have that fear that maybe people will reject you if they find out really who you are. You, some of you will know what it is to feel an outcast, to feel that you don't belong, and to feel like you will, maybe you will never belong, to feel that there's something wrong with you, to feel that people are whispering about what you did or who you are. It's just a problem of humanity, and it's how we feel. We live in a culture where people are shamed. Now, if that's how you felt, you've entered somewhat into the story of this lady who's been an outsider for 12 years living with shame. If you know what that's like, you're living in her story. And there's hope, because she pushed through the crowds towards Jesus, saying, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. Ben Witherington III says this in his commentary, the woman has taken a risk in touching Jesus, as she might have been condemned or further ostracized for daring to be in a crowd full of richly clean, never mind touch a holy man. And this is fascinating. This lady obviously has heard about Jesus, but she doesn't know how Jesus will respond to her when she takes a risk. Like Jairus, who takes a risk of being rejected by his community, she crosses invisible boundary lines. She walks into the crowd, not allowing her feelings of non-belonging and fears to prevent her from approaching Jesus in her desperation. And in the midst of the crowd, she touches Jesus, is immediately healed, and Jesus knows something's happened. And the disciples, when Jesus knows something happened, the disciples, when Jesus says, oh, who touched me? The disciples respond with a common sense answer, or Peter does. Look, you're in a crowd. Everyone's touching you. Of course you've been touched. But Jesus knows that power's come out from him, so he really pushes on it. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? So she gets, what, what she wants is to be healed, and she gets that. And I think that would have been enough for her if she had then been able to creep back from the clouds and carry on with her life, a healed person who would now be clean. But Jesus does even more than that. Jesus extends even more kindness than that. Now, if you've ever read this story in detail, you might have noticed something strange. Jesus calls out this lady from the crowd, but when it comes to Jairus' daughter, he speaks to the family and says, don't mention this healing to anyone. And you go, well, why would that be? And I think the part of it would be that Jesus wants to honour this lady. This woman had been an outcast, a social pariah, ignored, avoided, unwelcome for 12 years. She had been publicly shamed for years. Then Jesus, in front of the crowd is publicly honouring her. I don't suspect that woman's heard many kind words in a 12-year period. And then Jesus, what does he do? He reinstates her into the community. She's no longer unclean. He affirms the fact she's clean. And Jesus says the tender words that broke through years of isolation. He speaks to her and says, daughter, a term of affection, 
This woman who's known isolation, who's known separation, who's known what it is to be unwanted, suddenly hears these words, daughter, in front of the crowd. She hears those words, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. It's a beautiful thing. In, the public, in, in front of the crowd, he's honoring her. He's affirming the fact that she's been cleaned. She can now go. She can now take part in everyday life. Jesus does this beautiful thing of lifting up this lady who's downtrodden, not only healing her, but then raising her up and dignifying her. And that's what the gospel does. And some of you need to hear Jesus speaks to you and affirm you and say, son, daughter. Actually, Jesus, when he looks at us, he looks on us with affection. Often the world, often people don't. Often we hear lots of negative things. But that's not how Jesus looks at us or you. Anyway, while Jesus is speaking, news comes that Jairus' daughter has died. Jesus responds, don't fear, only believe and you'll be well. And just as this woman's faith in Jesus made her well, so there's a faith aspect here, so too by Jairus believing, his daughter will be made well. And they make this, together they make the short walk to Jairus' house. It's not long, it's a very small village. Uh, and there are already professional mourners in the place, weeping about this girl having died. And Jesus then tells the crowd, as we can read it, actually the child's only sleeping, she's not dead, and they just laugh at him and mock him, which is a prelude to what obviously happens later in Jesus' life, again where he's mocked, jeered at, overtones of that. And Jesus then enters the room with the girl's parents, Peter, James, and Don, takes the child, in, takes the child by the hand and gently says, child, rise. The child arises, Jesus gives him order not to share the news. And this raising of the dead is a shadow that points to Jesus defeating death and his resurrection from the grave. So in this story, we've got touching going on, haven't we? On the one hand, this, the woman reaches out and touches Jesus. And in this instance, Jesus reaches out and touches the girl. Touching is a significant part of it. Tom Wright writes this. Of course, touching was itself very important in both cases. In the world before modern hygiene, soap as we know it wasn't invented until the Middle Ages, and of course many things we take for granted, such as running water and proper drains, were barely thought of then. Purity taboos were vital simply to maintain public health. The Jewish scriptures and subsequent traditions had codified and elaborated them into almost an art form, and two of the most obvious sources of pollution were corpses and women with internal bleeding. In other words, a first century reading com reader coming across this double story would know very well that Jesus was apparently incurring double pollution. In the first case, he couldn't help it. The woman came and touched him without his knowing either that she was doing it or what she was suffering from. But officially, he had become unclean nonetheless. Now, as we read the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, we realize Jesus redefines uncleanliness. Actually, you don't get unclean uh, by hanging around with people who would be outcasts in society or who would be defined by the culture as sinners. Actually, uh, you can be in a positive influence in those things and bring God's light and li uh, life into those things and be transformatory. And Jesus clearly teaches at one point, actually, uncleanliness doesn't come uh, from how clean you are or external things. It comes from the heart. 
And by allowing himself to be touched, Jesus is showing that true holiness is not about avoiding foods or touching certain things. However, there's another picture at hand. Jesus was polluted by the woman's touch and by touching the the girl's corpse. As he touched their uncleanliness, as he absorbed their dirtiness, they were healed, restored, and raised up. And this is a picture that points to the cross. The the point, they, they point ultimately to Jesus' restoration. Friends, one of the aspects of the gospel is this. Jesus came into, the, into our world and the pure one died on a cross to absorb our sin, to take our shame, to take our brokenness. He took it upon himself. So though he deserved no mocking, he was mocked. He knew what it was to be shamed. It says in Galatians, cursed is the man, cursed is the one who's hung on a cross. But he didn't deserve that, but he did it for our sake, to absorb our shame, to absorb our guilt, to absorb our brokenness. He carried it for us. And if we come in faith, believing in him, we can be healed and restored. Our shame can be lifted from our shoulders. Our dirtiness can be cleansed. And we can hear the voice of Jesus saying, son, daughter. Now, what's interesting is both Jairus and the lady they took active steps towards Jesus. So in desperation, they came to him and Jesus met with them. So there's a role that we take, isn't it, of going towards him. But they found grace and kindness and mercy. Moreover, we know at the cross when Jesus absorbed our sin and shame and brokenness, Jesus' sacrifice was accepted. Like the girl who was raised from the dead, three days after dying on the cross, Jesus rose from the death rose from the grave, having conquered death and sin and brokenness. And we started off with with the big picture, didn't we? Of We live in a broken world because humankind turned away from God. But actually, as we read scripture, and we live at this current stage in a world which is still marred by sin, where we can see the fingerprints of God, but we also see lots of brokenness, lots of pain. But one day, we're told that Jesus will restore all things and everything will be returned as it should be. And that's our hope as Christians, a restored creation. Revelation chapter 21 says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things has passed away. One day we will be in a creation unmarred by sin. There will be no sickness. There will be no more shame. There will be no more death for those who put their trust in Jesus. And that's our hope. And at the moment, we have the privilege, if you put, put your faith in Jesus, you have a privilege living for Jesus to be God's image bearer, to actually bring God's light and bring God's hope into the world in Sutton or in Istanbul or wherever we are. We're called to be God's representatives, bringing the light and love of God. So let me just summarize where we've gone today in terms of uh, this story and just put some, highlight some key points uh, in terms of things that we can apply in our lives. The first one, what can we learn from the woman and Jairus? Hopelessness and desperation can cause us to turn to Jesus. Really, hopelessness and desperation is such a brilliant anvil for causing us to come to Jesus when we might not. 
Secondly, faith is active. Faith has legs. Uh, Jairus and this woman moved towards Jesus. And for some of you, there's a sense where God would say, come on, come to me, don't be passive. Thirdly, faith takes risks. And what can we learn about Jesus? The gospel reaches all. In fact, you can't just get it from this story, but generally the picture of scripture is Jesus loves all. In the crowd, Jesus touches the individual and says, son, daughter. Jesus heals the sick and he still does. And we've got to expect that. That's part of the, what God's kingdom coming looks like, is the sick being healed. And ultimately, Jesus is one who takes our shame, lifts us up and restores us. And that's the hope of the gospel. None who put their hope in him will be put to shame, is what the Apostle Paul writes, quoting from the Old Testament. Shall we stand up and pray? Lord Jesus, we want to thank you that the message of the kingdom, the message of the gospel is good news. Thank you that you take people who are broken, uh, who are cowering sometimes in shame and fear and guilt, and you lift up their heads and you restore them, and you remove guilt, you remove shame, you wash them with grace. God, thank you that that's our story. Lord Jesus, thank you. We believe the gospel is one about, uh, of a story of our shame being lifted, of our guilt being lifted, of our dirtiness being removed, so we know that we're pure before, before you. Jesus, I want to pray, would you, this truth go deep into our hearts? And I want to pray if we're carrying shame, Lord, would we come to you? Would we come to you and know you lifting our shame off us? Knowing, would those who haven't really heard your voice or very rarely heard the voice saying, Father, Son, would they hear your voice tenderly speaking to them uh, words of grace? Thank you that there's a, a table of grace spread towards us, that there's a feast of kindness that you want to shower on your people. Amen.